Good morning, Mendocino County and beyond. This is Johanna Wild Oak. I host Wild Oak Living and bring it to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. This program is all about living and working sustainably in Mendocino County beyond and building community. This week, today, I'm going to be talking with local author Monroe Robinson about his book, The Handcrafted Life of Dick Pronike. Millions of PBS viewers first met Dick Pronike through the program Alone in the Wilderness, which documents Dick's 30-year adventure in the Alaskan wilderness. My guest today, Monroe Robinson, was the caretaker of Dick's cabin and his personal effects. Um, and he, in this book, he examines... This, this adventure through the lens of his tools and the objects that he made, and he's written a beautiful book about it, about which we will talk about in a moment. This nonfiction how-to adventure and memoir weaves together vintage photos, entries from Dick's journals, drawings, and images to paint a portrait of a man fully engaged in the natural world around him. We are going to have a little later in the hour two signed copies of this beautiful book that we're going to be talking about, and it's going to be available for a donation to the KZYX Building Fund, and we, we have two books that are available for your donation, and we will share more details with you about that in a little bit. But first, I would like to welcome Monroe Robinson to Wild Oak Living. Thank you for joining us this morning, Monroe. Thank you very much, Joanna, and, and thank you, KZYX, for uh, allowing me to uh, talk about my new book here. Uh, this is very exciting. Well, it's exciting for me, too. I was just telling you, um, I was sitting here in the studio going through your book again, uh, because every time I open it, I just discover some, you know, some more amazing things about uh, Dick Pernica's life and your involvement in it and the stories of life in a, of a handmade life in Alaska. I, there's, there's much more to talk about in, in this book and, and all your stories related to it than we have time in this program today. But we're going, we're going to try and, 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 uh, share some of the highlights of this book. But if you really want to get a sense of, uh, and especially if you want to see all the beautiful pictures in this book, um, you're just going to have to get a copy of the book, but we're going to, we're going to try and give you a sense today. Let me start by what the way I usually start when somebody has written a book who's on uh, to share on Wild Oak Living. How did you get involved with this topic? I know it's a long story that starts in your childhood, right? Well, it does go all the way back to my childhood, but in, in shorten it up quite a bit and I built a, on a, a log bridge across the creek at, for Dick Prinicky's nearest neighbor, which was 30 miles south of him on a different lake and no road, no trails connecting between the two. And, and Dick Prinicky had hiked down to that same homestead that I had built the bridge and saw it and, and said that, uh, that I didn't know it at this time, but I was, read it in his journals where he said that was the nicest piece of log work he had ever seen and wanted to meet me. And a, a couple of years later, I hiked through the wilderness and met Dick. And then like so many other people in Dick's life, you would think of Dick living 100 miles from Anchorage and 30 miles from his nearest neighbor as being a hermit. He was the furthest thing from a hermit. He, he was just so far opposite of a hermit. He liked people. 
He was comfortable with his own company, however. Uh, but here, he, he had a way of living. So I was thinking about what you just introduced, the mission of KZYX is, and Z is, as living sustainably and, and building community. And those are the two things that fit for Dick Prinicky. He, uh, he, he, he went out there as an adventure wanting to have an adventure and, and record, document what he had done with slides and making movie film and journaling and then bring that back to his friends in Iowa and farm country and tell this story of a man meeting the wilderness, challenged by it and, and meeting it. And, and very soon, within a year or two, his talks transitioned into being part of the fabric of the wilderness. And he, he hunted, he killed a sheep for meat that first year, and then he hung up his gun and never shot another big game animal, even though he did keep eating meat. And, uh, and, and just like myself, he, he, he and I wrote to each other at least once a year after I met him in 1982 until he passed away. And uh, he wrote hundreds of people and I think of Dick, my wife and I both went out there out of a reverence for his legacy and, and the wildlife and wilderness out there. But after a while, we were, maybe the thing that was the most important were the people who came out there. And I think of them as that was the community. Some of them knew Dick and some of them were new to knowing Dick, had seen him through the video that you said but creating community. And I just think this, this book and reading and knowing Dick's legacy is one of creating community, that Dick started something about conversations of wilderness, taking care of wild places and, and not harming nature and wild animals. And we're, we're all the ones that's carrying on that same tr tradition. We're part of that community. And I want to talk much more about uh, about your being you you and your wife being part of the community in terms of maintaining his cabin and 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 also you know of course I want to talk more about Dick's life himself. I just I, I feel com compelled to share the dedication of your book because it t it tells so much about uh, about what you you were just explaining about how he had built this community around himself even though he lived the life of a her of a hermit. Um, and, and this is just such a beautiful dedication that you write in your book. It says, I wish to dedicate this book to my wife and soulmate, Catherine Schubeck. We first met at Dick's Cabin in 2000, fell in love the following year, married and were steadfast partners and caretakers of Dick Pernick's legacy for 19 summers. And we will hear more about those 19 summers in a moment. And then Dick uh, Monroe goes on to write, I wish also to dedicate this book to the visitors who told us that visiting Dick's cabin was not on their bucket list. It was their bucket list. And to those so filled with emotion at finally arriving at Dick's cabin, they wept. And to the wife whose husband was so affected touching Dick's handcrafted door, he could barely talk. She had planned the trip as a wedding anniversary present, paying for it by cleaning extra houses, which was her vocation. That just, it just moved me to tears, that dedication, because it shows how, you know, the connection that people had 
to uh, what what uh, Dick Pernicke built in the wilderness. Yeah, we we saw that maybe not every single day, but certainly every week that somebody that what what that meant to them to come out there and and we you know how what a gift to us to be present in people's lives at at an important moment like that in their lives and then and then on top of that to help have them tell us how much our presence there added to that experience that made it even something more so yeah it's it's really it wasn't a ultimately uh, it was about dick prinicky but it wasn't all about Dick Prinicky, and it certainly wasn't about us. It was about the visitors who came there, and and there, what in them brings them there? A lot of different things. Dick Prinicky had a dream, and he lived it. And some of those, a lot of those people had dreams, and many of them lived their dreams. But some of them went off in a little different direction, and most of them were happy with that. But Dick Prinicky's dream and them learning about it still rekindled these fires in them. That uh, so it was really, really a, a. We felt honored every day to be around the visitors there at Dick's cabin, and I especially felt really honored. There, were, my the highlight of each year almost was just the airplane with floats on it to land on the waters of Twin Lakes as it descended. And I would look around and see the smile on Kay's face. And she she didn't come out there so that her husband could live, you know, live the life that he wanted to for four months each year. We came out there as a as a partnership and it was just as important to her as it was for me. Let's let's go back a, a little bit in time and talk about uh, said kind of a timeline. When when did Dick Pernicke come out there, and how much time did he spend? And then and then let's let's weave the story forward to how then you came to spend nineteen summers uh, at, uh, at taking with your wife taking care of of Dick's cabin. Well, Dick had probably come to Twin Lakes in the very early 60s, maybe 62 or 1962, as a guest to a friend of his who lived on Kodiak with him. And that other man, uh, Spike and Hope Crothers, had built a cabin out there, a little hunting cabin that just typical of your pretty thrown together wilderness cabin. And so Dick came out there several summers and then he had an accident that left him blind for a while, and he didn't know if he would ever see uh, well again. And for him, that that tr meant he wanted. He said, "If if I'm ever able to see again, I want to live my life." And that was the catalyst for him coming out to Twin Lakes and deciding to have that adventure. That was his way of living his life to his fullest and he didn't really intend it as something to live for 31 years but he got i think of it as him getting caught up in his own dream <laughs> and then once it was a fulfilled cabin then he wrote about it and then a few years later by 73 a video that was made of his life there by the national park service to preserve that land or have it incorporated into a new national park. 
1976 or so, 75, the book One Man's Wilderness came out, and that was almost an instant classic. Uh, and so people knew about Dick, and Dick, Dick felt like he needed to live the life he had glamorized so much. And so he lived there and never had a chainsaw, never had a generator, built everything he needed out of what was already there. He used a lot of metal, but the metal even came from tin cans, gas cans that uh, hunters and, and uh, visitors made camp and left things there. He loved keeping all of Twin Lakes 12 miles long uh, cleaned up. He called it tidying up and he made things that he could use out of what he could find in the process of keeping Twin Lakes pristine. And then when he got too old to be up there in 2000, then the National Park Service called me down here in California and asked me if I would come up and consult with them on what should happen in the restoration of his cabin. And they called Kay Schubert, who had been a teacher about 200 miles from there and had, had been a volunteer botanist uh, for several summers in Lake Clark National Park and had met Dick and asked her to come and meet visitors. So we met there in 2000. And then uh, <laughs> we ended up just staying there or coming back for 19 summers, about four months each summer. We would bring all of our food that we would eat for four months with us. We learned really soon, how do you take care of apples and and oranges and carrots and each thing? Uh, how do you get the maximum life out of those? How do you get eggs to last for three months? And so uh, we never had a generator or a chainsaw. Our water came in from buckets from the lake and uh, did you actually live in the cabin or did you camp next to the cabin? How did that work? Ed? We we lived in Spike's cabin, the cabin that Dick's friend had built that's pretty roughly constructed. And, and so that was our home. It was 11 by 14 feet and had a gravel floor. Um, our, our shower, I'll say, just to give you a little bit of our living, our refrigerator was a 30-gallon garbage can buried in the floor inside the cabin so bears couldn't get into it. The uh, Our showers were taken by heating a little, maybe two gallons, two and a half gallons of water in, on the wood stove, and it was warm in there. And, and we would hang a little solar shower from the ridge pole, and the gravel floor allowed the water to seep on down. And so our little one room was bedroom, kitchen, living room, and and shower room. <laughs> that kind of takes me back to to when I first when I first started living in my place. <laughs> I, I one of the reasons, just on a personal note, one of the reasons I'm I'm I can so relate to the stories of this handmade life that you document in your book um, is that uh, my dad was a, a a carpenter and furniture maker. And I grew up with, you know, hand woodworking tools um, before all the power tools came along. 
And so I have, you know, I have a, a special connection to all the tools that you describe in the book. And, we, and let's talk more about that. Let me just take a moment to remind you that you are listening to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. Uh, I present you with a variety of topics, as you probably know if you're a regular listener. And today we are talking about the handcrafted life of Dick Pernike in Alaska. Uh, near, near Anchorage, uh, which, as we just heard, you know, took, took, took shape from the 1960s to the, to the, uh, late 90s. Uh, and, uh, and my guest, uh, Monroe Robinson, he is a local author. You are in Fort Bragg, right, Monroe? I'm in Little River. Ah, in Little River. Okay, great. Um, has, he has written a book called The Handcrafted Life of Dick Pronike. And it's a beautiful book. It's a huge book, first of all. It, you know, 300 and some pages filled with stories and beautiful photographs of tools that, uh, Dick built. And, you know, this is, I mean, the interesting and fascinating thing about this book and about the life of Dick Pronike that you document is that we're not just talking about building a cabin and, and, and building the tools used to build a cabin. Um, but, you know, everything that has to do with living in the wilderness, as you just described, you know, without a generator and without a, without electricity and without a refrigerator, or at least without a, without an electric refrigerator, um, and, uh, you know, everything that, that goes with it and things that we don't think about here in California, like, like, uh, snowshoes and all the things that you have to have so that you don't freeze to death in the winter and the, so that you can walk on snow. But not only that, but also to move across water, you know, to move a boat across water. So there are so many things that, that you describe in this book, um, that have to do with, with, you know, just, how do you manage everyday living and how do you build the things that, that you need in, in everyday living? And I just want to tell you that, um, we are doing today a little bit of a, of an early pledge drive. You probably know if you've been listening to the station regularly that we're right now in a quiet drive, which means we are urging people to call in and donate, uh, or become members or make donations to our building fund because we are, uh, we have acquired a, a building and we are in the process of, uh, of, of renovating that building and, and setting it up so that it become, it can become the new, the new station mothership here in Ukiah. And we are, uh, we are dedicating our fundraising to that for the next, for the next while because we have, uh, a, a, a large goal to make all of that happen so that we can put the future of the station on a secure footing and also because uh, the studio in Philo uh, is situated in a place where the trees are have now grown up in the last 32 years since we started this studio out there, the station in Philo. And pretty soon we're going to be in a position where we can no longer send the signal from that Philo studio up to the tower on Signal Ridge, which means, you know, no signal, no radio station. And so that's what prompted this, this move to Ukiah, where we are in the center of the county geographically, um, and also the seat of the county, but more importantly, where we are within line of sight to the, to our transmitter towers. Um, in in Anderson Valley and uh, uh, um, 
up in Willits. And so that our signal will be able to reach much further, will be much stronger, and a lot more people will be able to hear us. And we will be, and that will be a secure way to transmit our signal for the future. So we're urging you to support this building fund by making donations to our building fund during this quiet drive. And today we're going to offer a little bit of extra motivation for you to do that. We're sort of, we're going to have a little early um, uh, pledge drive gift to share with you. Uh, and for a donation of, of a, for a $15 a month sustaining membership or a donation of $180 uh, to our building fund, you can have not only a copy of this beautiful book, this, The Handcrafted Life of Dick Pernike by Monroe Robinson, my guest today, but a signed copy. And this is sure to be a, a, a collector's item. And, 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 but even, even just having this book to look at and to read and to share, um, is 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 just just an amazing experience. I I keep I keep dipping into it and going back and 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 rereading things and looking at the beautiful pictures. It's it's a wonderful book and you can have one of the two copies. We have two copies of this book by if you would like a copy of that book and and you can give a call right now. Renee Wilson, our membership director is standing by at the office in Philo and you can give her a call and make your pledge to her and and she will take your information and if you are you know one of the first two people to do that you can have a copy a signed copy of this beautiful book and the number to call in this in the in Philo right now the office number is 707 895 2324 that's 707 895 2324 uh, Renee, our membership director, will pick up the phone and you can make your pledge for a $15 a month membership, membership renewal, uh, or new membership, or if you want to just go ahead and make a straight out donation of $180, you can have a signed copy of this beautiful book. Dick, uh, you, I want to talk a bit more about your, your, uh, you and your wife's life during those 19 summers. Um, I mean, we mentioned at the beginning of the program that uh, your connection to this topic and to this life that Dick was living and to sort of making things started started early in your childhood. You you were the kind of child that borrowed your father's tool to make things. I learned in the introduction to your book. So I'm going to back up a little bit and, and put a little plug in of the pledge and. My wife and I are uh, supporters of KZYX and Z and have been for many, many years. And, uh, and that's part of my enthusiasm for doing this uh, program. And also just to say the, the book is just, just holding it is, I know I wrote it, but it's a lovely book. It's 450 some pages and 350 photographs and, and 60 illustrations, and the illustration on the front of the book is one that uh, my child, Elon, that went to school in Mendocino did, and so I'm very proud of that. The The layout of the book, it's just a really, really handsome book. Yes. Uh, and it, it, it's been just a super rewarding experience working with Lost Art Press on this book, so once the pledge drive and these two books are gone, then the book is always available at Lost Art Press. 
And uh, it's also available in Mendocino at, at the Gallery Bookstore. So, and, we, and we have people calling the uh, the online, the air number right now. Um, but we're, we're not going to be picking up the phone here in the studio just yet. If you are calling to pledge for the book, please call 707-895-2324. The station might also pick, I don't think they can pick up the 895-2448, the on-air number, because that's currently ringing here in the studio in Talmadge where I'm at. So if you would like a copy of the book, please call 707-895-2324. That's our office number in Philo, and Renee will pick up the phone. And uh, and again, this book, this beautiful book, it is so heavy that I can barely pick it up <laughs> with one hand. It's amazing. There's... there. Um, in one of in one of my former lives, I did I did uh, book layout and book design, and you're right, it is truly a beautiful book. It's beautifully done, and just the photographs alone can keep you busy for hours. Just looking at the photographs and reading the photograph captions, and if you're one of those people who would like to you know who would like to know and have this as a resource to learn how to live an independent life and to make things from scratch and to make things by hand you know this this book is also a, a tremendous resource for for someone who wants to learn how to do that you know if you want to build your own cabin and live your own independent life this is definitely a resource for how to do that um so we were talking about um, and thank you, by the way, for you know for for sharing your support for KZYX. Um, means means a lot, means a lot to have to have you uh, in, endorse us. Um, we talked about how your 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 you were you know you were drawn towards making things from scratch, even even as a small child growing up in Arizona, was it? Yes, it was in the very southeastern corner of Arizona on the desert. I grew up quite poor. Uh, but fortunately, my dad got a job working for the National Park Service as a maintenance man in Cherokee National Monument when I was little. And so I spent uh, my seventh, seventh, eighth, ninth grade at Cherokee National Monument. And that became a real pivotal point in my life because I was surrounded with the work of the Civilian Conservation Corps people from the Great Depression. And they had built a lot of retaining walls and steps and guardrails along the roads and the visitor center and the house that we lived in out of these great, huge rhyolite, a type of softer pink granite. And I was just really inspired by all of that work. And I was inspired by the National Park Service uh, being in control of that land and it being open to the public that everybody could see it. I was also surrounded with with artifacts from the local indigenous people there. And, and I was really traumatized and knowing and not that people talked about it, but it was just easy to see with the, with the, the Calvary Fort nearby, Fort Bowie and all of the shell casings and stuff that the native peoples were evicted off of that land by force. And, 
And that affected me. I felt helpless to do it, do anything about that. But I was also inspired that it, at least the country was didn't have a big copper mine in it and wasn't the country of Chiricahua National Mon Monument was being honored and and kept in a nice uh, uh, undestroyed way. And, and that came back again when I moved to Twin Lakes or my wife and I were up there all those years seeing that the native peoples who had lived there all those years uh, in a sustainable way. It, it, it brought vitality to their communities and now they're pushed out to villages uh, far removed from Twin Lakes. And again, I felt helpless to do anything about that, but the National Park Service, which Dick supported, is is keeping the land in a sustainable way. And the person that owned that bridge that I built 30 miles from Dick ended up to be the governor of the state of Alaska for eight years. And he had he had a way of there was a lot of development happening in Alaska and he would he would get people would say the Park Service uh, National Park Service having control of any land was just locking the land up. And he said the land that's really locked up is land that's in a as a mine or in private industry or even land that somebody has a house on it around the shore of a lake that the National Park Service, you could say, the land was locked open. And I just <laughs> was always really inspired I by that. that. I it's love that. I love that. Open for all yeah. of us to enjoy. And and Dick, although he I he didn't write anything about that statement, it was how he lived. He wanted that land to be available for everybody to see it. And he was aware that even his cabin was was in conflict with the presence of wilderness and that there was an incongruity there with his cabin there. And, and, uh, and, and yet, to me, that's an easy one to reconcile with. Where better in the entire world to have people coming every day and sitting and having conversations about wilderness and protecting wild places and wildlife than there at Dick Prinicky's cabin, who who a person who wrote and filmed all of this stuff. It's interesting that you tell the story and how he felt about the land, uh, and the fact that you spent nineteen summers uh, maintaining the cabin uh, that Dick Prinicky built. Um, at some at some point in your book, you write that he actually wanted. Um, before before the, the cabin was donated to the National Park Service, he actually wanted or envisioned that his cabin and everything he built would rot back into the earth. Yeah, when I visited him in 1982, he, he, he talked about that and he envisioned. So that was, what, 14 years after he had built the cabin. So he was well evolved in in his thought of, preserving wilderness and wild places and saw the incongruities of his cabin being in wilderness. And he talked about uh, that he had built it to rot back in the ground. And 
I remember sitting there with him and thinking, well, if thinking but not speaking this, uh, just well, why did you build a rock fireplace then, with all the the concrete and the rock and 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 Dick talked to other people about about maybe burning his cabin when he finished with it. Uh, so there are these incongruities in Dick's life. He, uh, one of the very last conversations he had with me on the phone, uh, after he had donated the cabin to the park service, he was living in Hemet, California with his brother. And he said, Monroe, what should I do with my cabin? And I said, well, I don't know what you, what you should do with your cabin, but I can speak to what an inspiration you've been in my life and what a part of that inspiration, your cabin being on Twin Lakes was and seeing that. And I can't help but think that people many generations after you're gone and after I'm gone can be inspired in that same way that I've been inspired. And I've left it at that. Wow. Well, I'm so I'm so glad glad you were one of the voices that 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 led to the preservation of his cabin and and also that you through your book uh, are now um locking open i guess <laughs> to use to use um the words that you just shared with us uh, all all the stories and all the and all the uh, items and how dick lived his life in in that cabin um let's let's take a bit of time to go through some of the chapters in your book you, you have a, you have it interestingly organized it it's so, parts of it are chronological but others are sort of uh grouped uh in you know in into different topics and and i love the titles you start out by talking about starting from scratch and that's about, you know, how the cabin came to be built. And then a land of snow and ice, you know, what it's like to live in a place uh, where if you're not careful, you can freeze to death. The cache is another chapter. Another chapter is five-gallon gas cans and all the things that you can make from a five-gallon gas can, as as you just alluded to earlier in the interview, uh, made from spruce. Um, and that's, you know, the, the, I, I'm assuming that that's the prevalent wood um, in that area. To work it's with. almost the only wood. Mm -hmm. It's <clears throat> there's a little bit of cottonwood that grows to maybe a foot in diameter, but it it's not rot resistant at all and pretty soft. There isn't birch doesn't grow there, which is the other dominant tree at, at a little little lower elevation. Mm -hmm. um, and then you go on to talk about tin cans and all the things one can do with tin cans. The Elgin and the Arctic Turn, gifts and barter and repairing, repairing with zeal. That, that was, that was probably one of my favorite chapters was repairing with zeal because, you know, whenever you, whenever you live a handmade life and, and build things, things break. And when things break, you have to fix them. And he seemed to have us an especially, uh, Dick seemed to have an especial, a special gift, not just for making things, but also for, for making things last as long as possible. He had a, a great desire to make things last as long as desirable, and he was a very capable repair person. When uh, the one thing, when he his cameras, either his slide cameras or his movie cameras broke, or one of the uh, the automatic timers or remote timers that he would 
create himself. When something that like that broke, then he repaired that out of necessity. He was either going to repair it or he wasn't going to be filming and taking photographs because to send it out and have it repaired, you can imagine how long that would take that the end of that season would be over. But with that, except with it, you know, not all the other things that he repaired didn't really come from necessity. It came from this inner, be, who he was and his values, his ethics. He wanted to just repair and repair and repair until there was no no life left in anything. And if it was metal, he would put some splint on it or some little hinge where it had weakened. And clothing, he would re- and even boots, he would repair on the top of repairs. But he was prepared. He came out there prepared. And there is a pair of boots that's photographed in there with a little leather patch on top of a leather patch on a, 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 a rubber sorrel type of boot. And he had three pairs of boots like that in a cabin that were all used up, completely used up. There wasn't any sense of a sole left on them. And and yet he, he had a brand new pair of boots in that same box. And then in his cabin were two pairs of boots that were pretty used, but still had some life left on them. I'm just, I just, I opened the book at random and, uh, and, and saw the pictures, for example, of, of the beach rake that he made and some of the kitchen items and backpacks. Uh, it, it just, there's just no end to the long list of items that he that he made or had to make, you know, if he wanted to live that kind of life, um, can you talk a bit more about uh, what what are some, what are some of the, the the most fascinating items that you discovered when you when you uh, when you went up there those summers to maintain his cabin? Well, in reading, it was really being up there all those years, and then it, on the the. Next to last year, the eight, 17th year, I get 18th year that we went up there, we finally got access to Dick's 7,000 pages of typed transcribed journals. And so it was really having access to those journals that started giving us a much more complete story of all of his handcraft because he wrote about making all of these and then he wrote about repairing them. And so blending that, his story in with the artifacts that he left there. And one thing that came to mind were all of these things that were commercial items from a little, a little aluminum backpack, back of frame, pack frame that was a Japanese made in Japan and it was broken apart and it was too big for Dick. And so he he relished getting that and then cutting it down to a size and and repairing it so that it was strong and then using that for all the pictures after that point show that rather than a plywood GI World War II pack frame that he had used prior to that and and he had he had a snow sled of toboggan that he could use on runners it's really an amazing piece of work made with spruce and a few nails and some 
high tensile wire holding things together. Uh, but he could only use that on the ice on the lake. He couldn't go through deep snow with that. And he found a half of a World War II fiberglass toboggan called an Occhio sometimes. And he just, he loved repairing that. And, and he found a, a little World War II GI folding shovel that the whole shovel, the handle and the blade is maybe 28 inches long or so. And from the best that I could tell, there was already a folding shovel out there. But it, it was, I found it at a cabin 10 miles away at a, a ranger cabin. And Dick liked that folding shovel that he had found because it, the, the, it would fold, but it wouldn't stay in the, in the straight position with the blade in line with the handle. He had to do some work several times to get that to work. And you can just read in there how he loved doing that. And, and his snow, the, so those are three commercial things that, that he just loved to repair and keep. He, he wanted to use just one of each of those things during all of those years. He, he kept saying about several of them, I think it's going to last the duration. <laughs> and uh, the same thing with his snow shovel, although it was not a commercial snow shovel, it was one that he made out of the barrel a 15 gallon steel drum, which is a pretty heavy steel, the same thickness of steel as a 55 gallon drum. And then it had two spruce handles uh, and he repaired it and repaired it and it got metal fatigue crack about nine inches long and he put a splint across the, the two metal fatigue cracks and and I replicated that, and that one was the one that I got to know Dick as much as any other, just seeing how he made his repairs and the the fasteners that he used on it, some nails and a few rivets that had been given to him and some used aircraft self-locking nuts and bolts and some aircraft sheet metal screws that he had put through and cut off the tip and then beat down to make rivets out of them. And so in replicating it, I replicated every single metal fatigue crack right to within an eighth of an inch of how he had his and, uh, and, and all of the hardware, the same that Dick had and, and put 30 years of, of patina or a, a, a a fake patina, but you can't tell the difference. The handle feels like it's been used for 30 years. And so that was that was a rewarding project to be working on. Let me take a moment to remind you, dear listeners, that you are listening to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and you are listening to us here on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Listener-supported community radio, KZYXNZ. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. And today, my guest is Monroe Robinson. He's a Little River resident, and he has written a beautiful book called The Handcrafted Life of Dick Pronike, which, uh, and Pronike, by the way, just in case you want to look it up online or something, is spelled P-R-O-E. N-N-E-K-E. That's P-R-O-E-N-N-E-K-E. The Handcrafted Life of Dick Pronike 
by my guest and, and local Little River resident, Monroe Robinson. And we're talking about this beautiful book and, and the stories, um, and, and perhaps, um, most, most, I mean, the stories are just amazing, but, you know, what, what I really love and what fascinates me is, is, putting the stories together with the beautiful photographs, as you said, more than 300 photographs in this, in this beautiful book. And we are doing a little special uh, early pledge drive edition of Wild Oak Living today. Uh, my guest, Monroe Robinson, has generously made available two signed copies of this beautiful book. And, um, and those are available during this program. If you would like to make a donation to the KZYX Building Fund, which we are currently fundraising for, for our new building, uh, and new studio in Ukiah, which will be the new, the new station headquarters, the new station mothership. And, uh, we, we're quite currently in the silent drive, but today we're going to sort of jump a little bit out of the silent drive and be a little less silent and talk about, how you can actually um, get a copy of this beautiful book that my guest Monroe Robinson wrote for a donation to our building fund, 2KZYXNZ. And it's really easy to do. Uh, Renee, our membership director, is standing by in the Phyla studio. And you give if you give her a call right now and pledge uh, either a $15 a month membership or... Um, or a $180 donation, you can get a copy of this amazing book, this beautiful book of more than 400 pages. It's a hardbound, beautifully hardbound cloth-covered book called The Handcrafted Life of Dick Pernike by my guest Monroe Robinson for a $15 a month donation, sustaining membership, or um, a $180 donation. Uh, well worth it in terms of all the support that you'll give to the radio station and the the thank you gift that you will get in exchange in the form of this uh, beautiful book, The Handcrafted Life of Dick Prenike, by my guest and local Little River resident, Monroe Robinson. And right now, Renee is standing by. We had some phone calls earlier here in the studio. Uh, so if you've, if you've called the regular studio number, uh, that's not the right number right now to call if you want a copy of the book. Please call the office number at 707-895-2324. That's 707-895-2324. And Renee will be happy to take your call and to take your pledge and see to it that if you are one of the first two people to call uh, and make a pledge that you get a copy of this beautiful book. And she's going to let me know when the books are gone. So I will let you know. So right now, it looks like the books, at least one of the books is still available if you want to call right now, 707-895-2324 to get a copy of this. Oh, oh, I just got a message. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, it's, it's, in an, it's in a place that I hadn't expected. I just got a message. Both books are gone. Okay. Well, Okay, so what are some, what are some other places people can get a copy of the book, Monroe? Because the the two donated books are gone. Well, people can get them locally at, at Gallery Bookstore, I know, and and then one can always go online to Lost Art Press, the publisher. 
Lost and, mm-hmm. and buy them through the publisher. Lost Art Press. And the book again is called The Handcrafted Life of Dick Pernike by Monroe Robinson. And Pernike, again, is if you want to look it up online, if you want to get a copy of the book, uh, P-R-O-E-N-N-E-K-E, The Handcrafted Life of Dick Pernike. Um, Dick, we have about uh, 10 minutes left in the show. And I, uh, um, I, I thought about maybe giving uh, our listeners an opportunity to ask you any questions they might want to ask you about the book and about your life. And if we don't get any calls, then I want to talk more about the summers that you spent up there and what you and your wife did while you were there. But if you want to join us and ask a question of my guest, uh, Monroe Robinson, about uh, his book and about his connection with Dick Pernike in Alaska, you can give us a call right now at the at the uh, studio number, and the studio number is 895-2448. That's 707-895-2448. Um, so you spent 19 summers up there, and you said earlier th- you were up there. Each summer is, is about four months. And, and basically, how did that work? They flew you there with all your stuff, and then they picked you back up at the end of the four months? Yes, we had very dear friends that lived about 50 miles out of Anchorage. And so we would stay, we would fly up to see them in Wasilla, Alaska and stage there and and buy everything that we would need and then fly uh, from there out to Twin Lakes in a little single engine plane with a floats and land on the water. usually a day or two after the ice left, which is uh, the very end of June, I mean, end of May, 1st of June, and uh, then settle in for a couple days and and get all of our food put away. Uh, And, and, you know, we, there's a, it, it wasn't that we survived just on what we brought out there. We, we were so loved and people would, would uh, bring us lunch sometimes. Uh, sometimes they would be making, a, a guide, a pilot would be making lunch for his guest or the, her guest and, and, and share that with us or people would share their lunch with us. Uh, a friend of mine came back from Colorado and and the night that he was flying up to Alaska he bought some fresh Olathe corn and some peaches and got to Anchorage and went to the food store and filled up this cooler with vegetables and and fruits and and brought it down to the air taxi service in Anchorage who know us and and they were flying out there that day. And we were actually out on the lake in the boat and had a little two-way radio that we could talk to pilots. And and we could see this plane and Kay, my wife, called up there. And and uh, uh, Carlin uh, said, where are you people? And he had this, this big cooler box of fresh v- fruits and vegetables for us. And so we were, we were sometimes overly taken care of. Uh, but we also, we also scrimped and ate a lot of beans and it, it worked both ways. 
Well, fresh, fresh fruit and fresh vegetables must be the, one of the most desirable commodities when you're, when you're out in the wilderness for a long time. Yeah, to get, to get fresh peaches and a lathe of corn, <laughs> you know, the corn 24 hours after it had been picked yeah. out there was just an extraordinary thing to receive. Did you, did you spend any time up there with your child? My child, Elon, came up there for the entirety of the first 2000, which was a short season for me, maybe only six weeks that first year. And then they came up there with me about half of the years, or with us, about half of the years after that, and usually didn't stay the entirety of this summer. They would come up there for two weeks or three weeks, a couple times came up with a friend of theirs and, and uh, Kay and I, or just, we would try to do a hike during that time that they were there and get somebody to take care of, of Dick Krenicki's cabin. Uh, so they, they came up over and over and, and, you know, they have their own inspiration of being in around Dick and, and his legacy too that's still part of their life that's that's wonderful that you were able to share that with your wife and with your child uh, do you do you think do you think um that kind of connection to to wilderness and to the kind of oh actually um, i'll i'll save my question because uh let's see we do seem to be having a call but i don't know if that's a call to the studio or to the or to or to the station so let's just check and see hello caller you live on wild oak living did you mean to call to be on the air uh yes yes i i tried to call to get a book but uh they'd already sold out <laughs> oh, okay and uh i just want to uh thank monroe for this book i i've been watching this story for many many years i teach woodshop at the waldorf school in Mendocino and also at River Oak Charter School. And uh, uh, I've just been fascinated. Uh, I had a copy of this CD, and that was uh, uh, that one of my students brought in, and we watched it, uh, you know, as part of the class for three years until he graduated from eighth grade and, and uh, took the CD. And I'm interested if it's available, and I certainly want to get a copy of the book. Uh, so thank you very much for the show. Uh, I've just been really fascinated by this story and, you know, inspired by Dick and his work and, and making furniture out of the small diameter suppressed growth dug fur more than spruce. But I, I every once in a while I get a little spruce too. But thank you very much. And, uh, is that CD available? That's my question. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and there are several videos that one can watch. You can go online in the the very first video made using and it was using Dick's eight and sixteen millimeter movie film. It was produced by the National Park Service in nineteen seventy three I believe as trying to promote Twin Lakes as a part of a new national park. It's called One Man's Alaska. And so Googling One Man's Alaska, I think it's 27 minutes or so, 
and it's free. And there's uh, there's another free video that was produced, I believe, by the National Park Service that's a little shorter, more recent one called No Place Like Twin Lakes. And both of those are, are you can find them on, on a search, no, no Place Like Twin Lakes. And then the people who made the video that has been shown on public television so many times, Alone in the Wilderness and Alone in the Wilderness Part 2 are Bob Swear, Bob Swear Jr. and Sr. They're from Colorado, and they they have, uh, it's Bob Swear Productions, and those are purchasable on uh on, on online. Yeah, it, I just, I just would recommend to Google the name Dick Proneke, P-R-O-E-N-N-E-K-E. I just did that and so many hits and so many links to all the videos and CDs and books. Yeah. And lost oh, art, okay. lostartpress.com for, for a copy of the book, lostartpress.com. And we've almost got to go, Monroe. We almost hit the, thank you, caller. We've almost hit the, uh, the, the 10 o'clock time slot. Thank you so much again for being on Wild Oak Living this morning. Thank you for writing this beautiful book, The Handcrafted Life of Dick Prenike. And, uh, thank you for supporting KZYX and our building fund by donating the books. They have happy homes now. And, and I want to thank those people who purchased those two books for their support of KZYF's building fund, too. It makes me very happy. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on Wild Oak Living and all the best. Thank you. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.